I want to start the talk tonight with some words of the Buddha from the first verse of the Dhammapada, a set of short teachings of the Buddha. This text goes, Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak or act with an impure mind, and unhappiness will follow you as the wheel of the cart follows the ox that draws it. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. I've always loved this short teaching because it really points to the importance of understanding and training and purifying the mind and the happiness that can come from that. But the Buddha also said, within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and perceptions, is the world, its origin, its cessation, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. Within this fathom-long body, And so that points to the importance of also understanding the body and the nature of the body and clarifying our relationship to the body. So even though I think that primarily the work of meditation is the work of the mind and the cultivation of the mind, it's through the mind we mainly suffer and through the mind we find freedom, Understanding the nature of the body and uh, having a, a, a wise attitude to the body, developing mindfulness of the body is incredibly important. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, mindfulness of the body. If you think back to the beginning of this body, your body, virtually any body, as far as I can see, it began in union union of egg and sperm in our case, mother's egg, father's sperm. There was that moment of union. But from that moment on, it's a constant process of separation and individuation. This miracle, really, of those cells separating and becoming unique, becoming, you know, cells of the skin and the liver and the the tongue and the other organs and muscles and the bones. It's quite amazing. So this process just starts immediately separating and individuating. And of course, with birth, there's that separation from the mother and the cutting of the cord. And so we move more and more into separation. But the newborn baby doesn't quite realize that it's separate. It takes some time. And if you watch a baby, you'll see this process. You know, like, oh, that's my finger. That hurts when I do that and discovering, you know, toes and and ears and really coming into this relationship to the body out of what was a state of intimacy and and a sense of connectedness to everything. This sense of individuation happens. And you see a young baby or a child begin to use the body to get what it wants, to reach or throw, to laugh or cry, to move around in the world so that we use the body as our agent in the world so we can get what we want. And because of all these processes going on, it creates that original sense of self and separation, self and other, that we separate and individuate. And 
also what happens is the body becomes most clearly or obviously simply me. You know, that I am the body. This is, you know, I look out of the body onto the world and I'm separate from the world. And so this process keeps deepening as we age. And at some point in that process comes self-consciousness. As we bring in this, develop this awareness of the body and its sense of separateness, then comparing starts to happen and even shame can start to happen around the body that we used to be so easy about and, and natural about. Of course, the archetypal image of this is Adam and Eve. When they lived in paradise in innocence, they were naked. And when they uh, got some wisdom or some understanding, they became ashamed of the body and had to cover it up. And, you know, a whole long story, of course, about that. But uh, that still ripples through our culture to today. So we learn all these different attitudes about bodies about our own body and about other bodies. We can get into really training the body. If you get into athletics or sports, and you just had the Olympics where we saw the pinnacle of what people can do if they train the body. Or many of us get into ignoring the body and just living from kind of the neck up and not a sense of being embodied, being in the body, a kind of denial of the body. We can get into obsessing and valuing the body, that it's all about looks and appearance and a certain type of look is better than another look, or abusing the body because of uh, some lack of self-care or self-worth. All of us, to some degree or another, get into judging or comparing the body at some point in our development and probably still to today to some degree because we have this sense of responsibility or ownership, even though when you look at the basics of the body, how little we have control over. I mean, you know, what our hair is like, or our skin is like, or how tall we are, we have no control over that. But we take so much, we have so much a sense of self and ownership of the body that it creates all of these kinds of relationships attitudes towards a body, and we can be obsessed with this, this relationship or these attitudes. What's interesting when we start to look a little more clearly at what's happened is that our ideas about our body particularly, but even any body, our image of our body is often not accurate. It's really actually quite distorted, and many of us don't like our bodies. You know, we look in the mirror and we don't like what we see, or especially I think this might relate more to women, but the terror of the changing room at a department store with the bright lights and the three-way mirror where, you know, it seems like every floor gets exaggerated and bathing suit season is kind of the ultimate of that, of, you know, having to go in there and try and squeeze into a little, you know, the smaller they are, the more expensive they are, it seems, bathing suits. But anyway, but what we're doing there is comparing ourselves usually to some idea or even more an ideal 
of what a body should look like. And of course, it's always thinner, younger, and stronger than the one we actually have. You know, and even as we age, what we used to be critical of at 35, don't you wish you had that back now, you know, at age whatever? Because um, there's always this sense of not good enoughness, not okayness that we can carry around about this body. And the thing is that these ideals that we're comparing to are actually fiction. I mean, even more so these days, where virtually every image that you see in a magazine, and certainly all the advertisements, are photoshopped. I mean, to some amazing extent, actually. It's, there's whole websites that just uh, document photoshopping and the distortions that people who have, seem to have no clue about what a body actually looks like, uh, what they do, especially to models, you know, where they have no elbow or no hip or you know, all kinds of bits stuck on or left out in their photoshopping. And you, even to the extent that, especially celebrities, they'll have their face and someone else's body underneath in the photo because their body wasn't good enough to be put out as this ideal image of what we should look like. And so it's no wonder that we get kind of screwed up about this because we're always seeing these images and they don't look like real bodies. They don't look like my body because they're not. I mean, they're not real. Even, you know, the models get photoshopped and, and made thinner till the point of looking almost alien. They're so, so thin. But this is the message that we get over and over again about what a body should look like whether it's thinner or stronger or more muscular or smoother or whatever, we take this in. And so we all have some sense of our body, of this body, and a view of it that doesn't often match reality. There's, I want to read an excerpt from a book by Larry Rosenberg, who's this great teacher, many of you probably know, teaches at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, written a couple of my favorite Dharma books, and this one is from Living in the Light of Death, where he looks at the death contemplations and the, um, these traditional practices, but he brings a great sense of humor to it. So this is from Larry's book. I am a person who takes very good care of himself. I do yoga most mornings, I take long, vigorous walks, I meditate a great deal, and I'm careful about food supplements and the food that I eat. Sound familiar? Anyone else relate to that as a description of yourself? About three years ago, when I was 63, I was on the subway in Boston, coming back from a trip to the dentist. I comfort myself with the thought that I may have looked a little peaked from my dental work. I was standing there holding on to the metal rail when a young woman seated in front of me smiled and stood up and gave me her seat. <laughs> I didn't realize at first quite what was happening. I thought she was getting off at the next stop. But that stop went by and the next and I started to realize, wait a minute, a young woman just gave me her seat on the subway. My mind started racing. I wanted to say to her, you've got it all wrong. I get up and give my seat to you. I've been giving up subway seats all my life. But apparently, from her standpoint, this looked appropriate. She was a young, vigorous, healthy woman, and I, it seemed, looked like a man who needed to sit down. <laughs> 
All my years of doing yoga, of eating good food, and taking long walks were wasted. I looked my age anyway. Next time it would be, hey, Grandpa, how'd you like a seat? Or slow down, old timer, let me help you with those packages. My self-image as a youthful, bouncy, older man, an image I didn't even know I had, had been smashed to pieces. This was not a bad experience. It was actually good. A young woman made a courteous gesture, and I got to take a load off my feet. It was what I did with it before my awareness returned and I had a good laugh at myself that mattered. It was a modern-day rite of passage, an initiatory moment that let me know that I was in a new category. It shattered my self-image. So we've all had those moments, whether it's getting carded when you're going to a bar and wishing you weren't, or stopping getting carded when you go to bars and wishing they would, or getting your AARP card in the mail, or you know, showing up at the movie uh, uh, counter and them automatically giving you a senior discount without asking for it. You know, these things happen. We get reflected back an image that we don't hold as true for ourselves because most of the time we have a somewhat distorted image of the body and what it's like. I read an article a while ago on body image. There's a, a lot you can read about it because it's so uh, interesting. So body image is, this is by a doctor, body image is a term that has come to mean our mind's eye image of our physical experience, appearance in contrast with the outer image as rated by an unbiased observer. Most would think these two would correlate substantially, but studies have shown that the over, that have shown the overlap to be astonishingly low at 5%. 5% of what we think and what other, an unbiased observer would say. It's this body image that is closely related to psychological factors and clinical conditions like eating disorders, depression, and low self-esteem. Because so we don't have an accurate idea, really, of the body. And so there's a lot of suffering around this in this culture. Um, and it can lead to distorted ideas about the body and certainly disorders like anorexia of never feeling you're thin enough even though you're very thin. Or now there's bigorexia where especially young men don't feel they're muscular enough and they're always wanting to be bigger and more muscular. So a lot of distortion, very painful because of this un not understanding the body. And so there's a disconnect that happens. Again, the body can be seen as kind of almost an enemy, something we have this aversive attitude towards for one reason or another. And definitely this sense of separation, of a lot of conflict around the body and our relationship to the body. Because it's seen as this separate thing, this even though we're identified with it, we're in this conf conflicted relationship to it. You probably know that line from James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. So it just kind of leads to these distorted 
ways of relating where we're in conflict or we're obsessed with, it's dist- or it's distorted, or in denial, not connected to the body. And we can bring those kind of ideas unconsciously often into our meditation practice. We're often not aware, as Larry said, of the image that we have or the relationship that we have to the body. But it's really important to know or understand, begin to explore what it is or how we do relate to the body, our attitude towards the body, because it definitely impacts how we do our meditation practice, how we practice mindfulness of the body. This is a a longish excerpt from an article I read a while ago by Reginald Gray. He's a Tibetan teacher. It was in the Shambhala Sun talking about how we bring that relationship into meditation, often in a way that's not so helpful. He says, Buddhist meditation as practiced in the West frequently suffers from a profound disembodiment. Often we meditate from the neck up as floating heads, completely cut off from the life of our bodies and our physical existence in the world. We meditate in this way because we believe, often without realizing it, that the ideal meditative state should somehow be devoid of pain. Oh, sorry, devoid of the pain, complexity, ambiguity, and physicality. In other words, the full embodiment of our natural human condition. You may object that the Buddha taught a Dhamma whose goal was to show the way out of suffering. Quite true. But often in our Western practice of Buddhism, we mistake the goal for the path, seeing the Buddha's attainment of the goal as a description of how we should go about meditating. Many of us, when we sit down to practice, do so with a longing for quiet and peace. No problem. But then our meditation becomes an exercise in trying to attain such a state. It's here our problems begin. If we are experienced and skillful enough, perhaps we have figured out how to meditate so as to remove ourselves from the pain, uncertainty, and groundlessness of our lives and enter into a much more satisfying, unambiguous state of mind that we identify as the meditative state. What could possibly be wrong with this? The problem is that in this approach, we are expressing and strengthening the profound dualism that has afflicted Western culture since at least the early Christian world of St. Paul. The view of meditation as disembodiment involves not only our idea that we meditate to remove ourselves from the dirt and detritus of our habitual mental states. More subtly, it is our mental image of an ideal disembodied state that we, perhaps unconsciously, hold up before ourselves every time we sit down to practice. This may be based on a memory of a state experienced in our own practice or with a respected teacher or something we have read or heard. No matter what specific practice we may be using, this mental image, whether conscious or unconscious, is guiding and directing our meditation. It will limit how we are able to engage and how much we are able to experience 
and it will restrict what we are able to see. So I thought this was interesting about our tendency, and especially if it's unconscious, to want to float above a little bit, to want to be in this more uh, easeful realm that of course, you know, feels appealing, but doesn't actually land in the truth of the moment, the truth of this body. And our practice is to connect with what's true about the moment, with what's true about here and now, as it actually is. Joseph gave this uh, beautiful teaching this morning about recognizing or coming back again and again to there is a body. This is so important. And so there is this invitation to open to that there is a body and in that connect to the body as it is, however it is in the moment, not a memory of how it was yesterday or a projection of what we'd like it to be, some ideal of the body, some uh, escaping of the body, but actually as it is. And so as we're trying to see clearly a big part of what we see, what forms the ground of our meditation, is this mindfulness of the body. And to really see that the body is our vehicle for awakening. As much as it's the work of the mind, so much happens through our awareness of the body. Because a lot of what we actually know is body-based. We're knowing it through the mind, yes, but emotions, moods, of course, pain and different sensations all register, manifest in the body. And our ability to connect directly with that, with as little filtering, as little projection, as, as immediate as possible, is enormously powerful to see the actual nature of the body, its felt sense. And this can be the beginning of challenging the assumptions or ideas we have about the body. To meditate, all we need is a body and a mind, of course. But as the sutta points to, mindfulness enough, there is a body. And awareness and mindfulness of that, of course it can deepen, but it doesn't matter what kind of body. It just matters there is a body and that we can be aware of it. And so it starts to challenge the assumptions that we have about a body, that this body isn't good enough, isn't okay, isn't the right body, isn't you know, healthy enough or tall enough or strong enough or whatever it is. And also, as we get deeper, these even assumptions about separation or the body is me, is mine we start to look at the very relationship to the body and see it can be a source for huge suffering and identification or a place of awakening, a place that we can actually find freedom through our relationship and understanding of the very nature of the body. So the body and our relationship to it, our attitude to it, is incredibly important in our practice. So we need to begin to understand what's a skillful relationship, a wise relationship, a wise attitude towards this body right now, right here. 
again, in history, you know, long, there's, you know, great histories of obsessing about the body, or idealizing, glorifying the body. So much art, you know, is about the, the beauty of the body. And bodies, of course, have beauty, can be incredibly beautiful. The statue of David or Venus, de Milo, all of the beautiful art. There's also a long history of denying the body throughout Christianity of, you know, flagellation or whatever, you know, asceticism, all those kinds of practices of denying the life of the body. And Buddhism has a thread of that too. If you know the story of the life of the Buddha, before he was enlightened, he did many years of rigorous self-asceticism and really extreme of not eating or bathing or and sleeping outdoors and he was so thin, it said that if he pressed his belly button, he could feel his spine. And then he realized that that wasn't the way. The idea he had was if he tortured the body enough, somehow the spirit, the soul, would would transcend and go free. But he saw it wasn't getting anywhere. So he took some food and discovered what he be, he came to call the middle way, that the extremes of indulgence are not... Uh, praiseworthy, not onward leading, but also asceticism is not helpful, and discovered this middle way and, and realized that practitioners need the four requisites of food and shelter and, and medicine and clothes, um, that, that we need to take care of this body so that it can do this kind of practice. Now, of course, what he considered the middle way, we would these days think of really extreme asceticism. But the valuing that he put upon the body being healthy is a lesson that we can really take. You know, he said, you need to take medicine if the body is ill. We need to take care of ourselves. It's not about soldiering on through difficulty. So knowing the body intimately is a central part of this kind of meditation practice. There are many other kinds of meditation that go into mantra or visualizations that I think Reginald Ray might have been pointing more towards when he was talking that piece earlier. But our practice is really grounded in mindfulness of the body. It is the first foundation of mindfulness, as Joseph was talking about tonight. It's where in the sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, that really is the description of the practice that we do here, begins with mindfulness of the body and has these six different practices that you can do with the body. And each one has a number of subsets underneath it. So there's a very evolved and um, even complex set of practices that the Buddha talked about Uh, working with the body and mindfulness of the body. So it's where we begin. And it's great that this is the place we start. You know, it's where we're most intimate, not to go off into some esoteric realm, but here in relating to this body, right here. And so it begins with the breath and knowing intimately the nature of the breath and using the breath to calm the body and and bring well-being to the body, and then opening up to the body in all these different ways through the four elements and the body in action, um, body in movement. Again, Joseph talked about this morning. There's a whole section in the sutta on the 32 parts of the body, 
And it's not a practice that we teach in a retreat like this because it's very complex. But if you know that sutra, I know many of you do, there's this list of body parts that begins with head hair, body hair, nail, skin, teeth, and goes on to all of the fluids of the body, the pus, phlegm, blood, urine, and the muscle and the bone, and the heart and the liver. And the practice is really to develop this intimate relationship, not just with the superficial uh, skin and sensations of the body, but actually all of these parts of the body. And traditionally, this practice is called a suba practice. And it's uh, in some translations, even, even in Bhikkhu Bodhi's usually wonderful translations, it's uh, often translated as things like the heading before this section is the loathsomeness of the body. Or, you know, the body is in some way disgusting, and that, that this was, uh, in the commentaries especially, taken to be the attitude that this practice would develop. Well, I was really curious about this practice because it's right there in the sutta, but I was never taught it. I didn't know anyone even that was teaching it. So one time when I was on self-retreat at the Forest Refuge, I took it upon my, to, to, to myself to t- teach myself how to do it and found what little I could that was written about it and began to try to practice it in the way that the commentary said that's the most that's written that I could find at that time and then what was in the text itself. Luckily, um, in, there's a library over at the Forest Refuge and I just happened to find the catalog from the exhibition called Body Worlds. You know that ex- exhibition that's um, uh, this... I think he's a doctor, uh, was able to get these corpses, dead bodies, and and put them through a process he called plastination or plastinization. So it was some kind of preserving of the bodies that enabled them to be preserved in a lifelike attitude, but he would dissect them. So this catalog was just photos of bodies that were opened up in all kinds of ways to the organs and the musculature and the bones and the nervous system and the blood system. So that was my Bible for my practice because, I mean, I didn't really have any idea what the spleen looked like or the gallbladder or all these different parts. You know, some you have a sense, but kind of know where they were and the color, etc. And the practice is... It's a whole regimented way you do it, where you do, you do them in groups of five or six, and you do them forward and backward, and then you add the next group. And it's very concentrating and quite an amazing practice. I mean, I only did it for a couple, two, three weeks, so I'm certainly not an expert in it. But I found it to be really profound. And instead of, you know, as the text kept pointing to loathsomeness of the body, this will incite disgust, one should view the body this way, I actually not, I wouldn't say fell in love with the body, but really became in awe of the body. It was just uh, shown to me what a miracle this body is. I mean, how much goes on in the body that we have no clue about and certainly no control over all of the hormones that get secreted and the, you know, different things of blood sugar and all of the stuff that happens that is just happening automatically. I mean, it's a miracle this body. So there was that that was developed, but also a great deal of equanimity because it's hard to get identified with a liver. You know, my liver or my kidney, when I saw all these photos, that they all looked pretty much the same. I mean, maybe a little different in size or whatever, 
but this basic universality to body. So it wasn't so much, uh, it certainly wasn't at all a, a practice of disgust for the body, but actually amazement at the body. But these kind of practices in the way, especially some of the commentaries wrote about them, um, have given Buddhism a, a flavor sometimes of a negative view of the body. And again, it's a little understandable. These practices were um, carried out and, and passed on through monastic traditions mainly, and they were celibate. And so these practices were often done to combat and, and work with passion and lust as, as it arose for, for one's own body, but you could do these practices for other, other bodies. And so it was a real a skillful means. As lay people, though, we we need to have a different relationship to the body. But even in that practice itself and in the words of the sutta, to me, it's not an invitation to loathsomeness, oh, isn't this icky, all this blood and phlegm and pus. The image that the Buddha used is that the practitioner looks at the body as though it was a sack with holes at both ends filled with all kinds of grains and rice and beans and rice or something, and it'd say this is red beans and black beans and green beans and lentils. So it's just looking and saying, this is what the body is made of. It's, you look at a pile of rice, that's not disgusting. Um, and a, there's just that real sense of equanimity. This is just the nature of the body. So I don't think creating a sense of aversion was the Buddha's intention. Actually, the opposite. There has to be this balanced appreciation of the body. And Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's one of our great scholars, um, writes and translates voluminous amounts, said this about this question. Although early Buddhism is widely believed to take a negative attitude towards the body, the texts of the Pali Canon do not support this belief. They approach the body both in its positive role as an object of meditation to develop mindfulness, concentration, and the mental powers based on concentration, and in its negative role as an object for unskillful states of mind. Even in its negative role, the body is not the culprit. The problem is the mind's attachment to the body. Once the body can be used in its positive role, to develop mindfulness and concentration, those mental qualities can be used to free the mind of its attachment to the body. Then, as many a modern meditation master has noted, the mind and body can live in peace. So it's not about, you know, that we need to be detached from the body or averse to the body or, you know, have some kind of disembodied meditation but a wise and skillful relationship to the body. The body in all of its uh, aspects, inner and outer, and in all the postures. Again, in the sutta, it talks about awareness of sitting, walking, standing, and lying down, that we meditate in all these four postures. And so our practice is really to start to know the body in this intimate direct way, without filters, or projections, or ideals, or distortions. When we start 
to be aware of the body in this way when we close our eyes in meditation, what is it that we actually experience? So there's this uh, invitation that Joseph mentioned, just this awareness, there is a body. But when you close your eyes, what actually is there? It's not a body in the sense of, there's there's a question this morning, of a concept. What we actually experience are different degrees and, and areas of pressure and warmth and coolness and tingling and vibrating and pulsing. This is what our actual experience of the body is. And in that, we start to see quite literally, quite immediately, the changing nature of the body. It's not one thing. It's not solid, and it's certainly not permanent. It's this fluctuating, flowing set of processes that even as you bring mindfulness to them can often change. The very awareness of them changes our uh, relationship to it. But from that inner experience, we make a whole world. All of these ideas and attitudes and good and bad and this and that and not enough of this. And we identify, you know, my pain and my back and my body. The Buddha's instruction, again from this Satipatthana Sutta, a little earlier than where Joseph was talking, says, hear bhikkhus, and a bhikkhu is anyone who's a serious practitioner. Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu lives contemplating the body in the body. And this is another important part of that sutta. In the body, not in the idea of the body, the concept of the body, but in the body itself. Ardent, this is that word I was referring to the first night about courage, um, ardency. Ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful of it having overcome covetousness and grief for the world, that one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, and goes through seeing all of the five aggregates, which starts with the form aggregate of the body, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness. We'll talk more about these as the retreat goes on. When we look at the body in that way, we see it as not me, not mine, not who I am. It's just this set of processes this changing, flowing, um, alternating set of experiences. This is actually what we can know as the body, as a meditator. This is the beginning of a wise relationship to the body, to see it in this way. So part of our challenge is we see this body in some ways, it's kind of impersonal. As I said, you know, my liver, your liver, it's just a sensation. You don't have to even say my sensation, certainly not my pain or my knee. But how do we do that and at the same time care for the body, find this balanced attitude to the body so that there is some ease in the meditation because it is hard to meditate when there's a constant struggle, either through ideas or literally in the experience of the body, or certainly if we're not connected to the body, if we can't land here 
in our experience of the body in this direct and immediate way. So there's a balance that we're always exploring about seeing the body in this kind of impersonal way and actually caring for the body, bringing kindness to the body, even healing the body, and to create a healthy relationship with the body. Many of you probably know the power of meditation for healing, and I'm not talking about miracles, but just bringing balance into the body and the great work that John Kabat-Zinn, who's a practitioner of this kind of meditation, friend of all of ours and a student here at IMS, from this meditation developed MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, that has now gone on to serve countless, I mean, it's probably in the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, I don't know, um, who are dealing with chronic pain or stress. And through mindfulness, finding balance, finding ease that medication couldn't touch, that other forms of therapy couldn't touch, just through the power of mindfulness and bringing a kind awareness to the body through this process of scanning, of uh, using the mindfulness to scan through the body. Now here on a retreat like this, our intention isn't just to get comfortable. It's not just to get rid of pain, to make the body feel better, but to awake. We want to wake up. We want to find freedom, deeper happiness, more understanding. So finding this right balance in our relationship to the body is is really so important. Here we are on the first day or so of a long retreat. There's bound to be discomfort in the body. For virtually everyone, I guarantee it. You know, it's just like starting up at the gym or training for any kind of activity. There's, there's just the getting used to the schedule and the long hours of sitting and the kind of walking meditation that we do and, and adjusting to the conditions here. So I guarantee that you've all, to some extent or another, had an uncomfortable body at some stage in these early days. And that will continue to some degree or another as we go on. So we need to know how do we take care of the body in a way that's balanced. And this is, I think, a big art of meditation. When we listen to the body and give it rest or ease or a break, we move, you know, we move the posture if it's really uncomfortable. I really don't feel that we can meditate effectively if the mind is like a tight fist, if we're just gritting our teeth and making it to the end of the sitting, if we're doing that over and over again. It's just not that helpful. We want to find a way where we can actually, you know, meet experience with a sense of acceptance or interest or equanimity, perhaps even, you know, joy or pleasure to to find that intimacy with the body. Yet, We also don't want to be at the kind of whim of every little itch or ache that comes along, every bout of restlessness. So again, this is the balancing. Um, How to be compassionate, 
but not stupid compassion, which is, you know, the one who goes, oh, you know, forget about that. This is too hard. Or go take a break. Go get a cup of tea. Forget that walking stuff. Or, you know, you've been sitting long enough. Time to move. You know, we, we need to start discerning the voice of wisdom that really says, this is enough. This body needs a break of some kind. And when it's the voice of distraction or restlessness, learning to be kind physically and emotionally towards ourselves, for many people is one of the biggest things they can do on a retreat. To actually pay attention in a way that understands what's for our true benefit, our true well-being. So giving yourself permission to explore that, really trusting the integrity of that. Again, not stupid compassion that lets you just wander off as soon as it gets a little bit difficult or uncomfortable but actually an inclining towards being more present, being more connected. And this balancing act is, again, going to be with you throughout the retreat because it's always going to be changing. This balance between effort and relaxation. Because we do need effort. The effort just to, to be mindful in this next moment, to have some continuity of practice. But we also need to know how to relax how to invite a sense of ease so that it's actually welcoming to be present. So there's always this balancing between relaxation and effort, between a kind of persistence and a kindness to our experience. So a lot of our practice, well, I shouldn't, depends on the individual, but certainly for all of us, we will have to practice with pain, with working with pain, in whether it's on a regular basis or just certain times of the day or certain sittings. The body often only makes itself known through pain. For many of us, a good sitting is where I don't really feel the body very much. I'm just with the breath. Oh, that was a great sitting. I just kind of floated, disembodied, just breathing. And so we only notice the body when it's waving the red flag of of pain and discomfort. And then it's like the project. I call it being on pain patrol. You know, where's the next fire I need to put out? And then we work on that. Phew, that's that's worked out. That's kind of like a massage. Work that one out. We're just sitting there waiting. The antennas up and like, there's the next one. And and meditation can just be that kind of project-oriented getting rid of pain. Now, I'm certainly not going to sit here and say pain is great. Meditating is easier without certainly huge degrees of pain. But pain can also be a great teacher for us. There really is so much to learn uh, about ourselves through our attitude towards discomfort and pain. Because we see, you know, the immediate withdrawing or the tightening or the contracting or the agenda or the aversion that comes, the struggle that happens when pain is in the body. And our first instinct is just get away from this, whether we do it physically by moving, getting up or whatever, or mentally just by checking out. And it's really interesting to watch that moment where we choose to do that and start to get interested in that. And in saying this, I'm not saying you should sit through pain through in some unskillful way, 
but to be willing to be there that moment longer that just checks into that place of wanting to move away and look, looking at what's happening there, looking at the aversion or the fear or the frustration. And can we be mindful of that? Rather than obsessing about the pain, it's the aversion that's actually causing the body to move. And you can start to see as you watch in this way how most of our life is actually moving to get away from suffering. On the littlest, in the littlest way, you know, too warm, too cold, you know, hungry, thirsty, need to pee or whatever, we're always responding in these ways. And again, nothing wrong with that, but to start to pay attention to the motives and how insistent that unwillingness to be with any difficulty can be, and it doesn't allow us to land. We're always trying to fix trying to get it right so then we can meditate. Pema Chodron, that great Tibetan teacher, says all of practice is about learning to stay. Actually learning to stay and be with, even that moment longer, with an experience if it's difficult. So much of what we um, do is create strategies, you know, try to make projects out of experience. And so it's just a a place to explore. What's the edge there? And can I just get curious, even for a moment, if the mind's too tight, if the body isn't just able to do it, sure, it's much better to go to something more spacious, to move, to breathe in a way that's easier. But to be willing to work with the edge of that also. And so sometimes we need a great determination to actually stay present. My, my first teacher, my first retreat with, with, was with S.N. Goenka, who's a very fierce teacher, and his retreats are very demanding. I had no clue what I was getting into. And it's not many days in that he has what he calls vow hours, where you know the meditation is for an hour and you are not to move. You're not to move your hands or your shoulders or your feet, your legs or anything. And I would just be hanging on for, you know, grim whatever, by the skin of my teeth, waiting for that click. He would click the microphone before he rang the bell. You'd just be like waiting till that happened. But I found I could do it. It wasn't pleasant. I don't know how mindful I was. I was just hanging in there, but I really saw, you know, to sit through something you didn't think you could sit through. How often do we say to myself, I can't bear this anymore? But if you have enough mindfulness to see that thought in the mind and look at it, you often find you can. You can bear it a moment more and perhaps even get curious about it. So this is the the shifting that can happen as we start to inhabit this body, really be very present for it. And of course, in the life of the body are also pleasant experiences. And we love those, don't we? Of course we do. It's understandable that we do if the body is feeling light and blissful or joyful or spacious or open. Wonderful. We need to also know that, be intimate with that, be mindful of that. But as we often say, the worst thing that can happen to a meditator is to have a good experience because then that's the 
metric by which we judge every other sitting and we can get lost. And many of us, many of you probably have stories of how long it took you to let go to the final nth degree of longing for that great experience you had five years ago on your first retreat or your second retreat or whatever. I mean, it can really be a great challenge to the practice. So yes, we, we need to appreciate and, and open to when the body is in that, that state. And, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful when that happens, but it's also impermanent. And if it's, we cling to it, it is a source of suffering. So again, in the wise relationship, we, we start to see that. I mean, how often have you had where, you know, the body is like that and the thought comes in, ah, oh, now I've got it. You know, this is how meditation should be. Somehow I turned the corner. You know, whatever the instruction was or whatever practice I was doing, however, was, this is what it's going to be like. Now for the rest, I'm, even as we're saying, we know it's not true, but, you know, there's this vain hope that somehow we're going to hold on to this beautiful experience of the body. And what happens? It changes. What happens next? We suffer. So it is being willing to be with this immediacy of the body, how it is right now. How can we be with that, open to that? And so we see that that is not, the body isn't a source of lasting happiness. This is not what the Buddha was pointing to when he talked about freedom. It doesn't happen just in the body. The mind has to be transformed. So we develop over time, through practice, through our own experience, and again, this is the power of this practice, your own exploration. What is a skillful relationship for you to this body? Not what was skillful yesterday, not what you think should be skillful, but right now, as it is. And to recognize this body is the vehicle for our awakening. It's the body that we will walk on the path with. But we have to have a wise relationship. We care for it. We, we, we you know, feed it and we clean it and we stretch it and we do whatever it is we need to do to keep it in balance. But we recognize that it is just a vehicle, in some ways impersonal. We don't own the body. So Buddha said over and over again, not me, not mine, not myself. It is just the body. We see it in its elemental nature of just heat and cold, earth element, air element, fire element, water element. This is the actual nature of the body. And developing that kind of relationship of seeing clearly is the way to the path of freedom that the Buddha talked about again and again. So I want to close with another verse from the Dhammapada pointing to this wise relationship to the body. Simply talking a lot doesn't maintain the Dhamma. Whoever, although she's heard next to nothing, sees Dhamma through her body is not heedless of Dhamma. She's one who maintains the Dhamma. So again, at the end of 
talks we just like to have some silence to let the words settle. You don't need to change your posture. It's just about letting the words fade into the background and coming into a direct connection to your experience, your body, your breath, your mind, as it is right now. So thank you for your attention. So it's about 35 minutes for walking till the sit, last formal sit of the day at 9 o'clock where Greg will again lead us in this beautiful chant, the Karaniya Metta Sutta. The schedule... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.